morning. My name is Jill. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Jillian. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 8, 28 to 32. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Nora. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 10, 17 through 18. This is why the Father loves me. I give up my life so that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I give it up because I want to. I have the right to give it up, and I have the right to take it up again. I receive this commandment from my Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the way that you speak and we pray now that as we listen to your word, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open up our eyes and our ears, our minds and our hearts to know you and to hear you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen, amen, amen. Well, it's great to see all of you today. I have missed being with you. A couple Sundays ago, I got real sick, and uh, by some sort of, I don't know if this is providence or serendipity or whatever, but somehow Jason... Uh, his flight was canceled as well, and so and he's just amazing, and so at the drop of a hat kind of noticed he was ready to preach a couple Sundays ago, so well done, Pastor Jason. Thanks for standing in at the last moment. And then, of course, last Sunday I was preaching at one of our other congregations here at New Life, so it's great to have Jason continue the series as well, but I'm really looking forward to giving the next several weeks a run here through the series. We started this a few weeks ago, and we called this kingdom and chaos. And it's a series in the book of 1 Samuel, which is a book in the Old Testament which kind of tells the story of how Israel moves 
from being kind of a, 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 a loose sort of confederation of judges and district rulers into a full-fledged monarchy. And so, but we're talk, we've called this series Kingdom and Chaos, one, because it comes out of the book of Judges where it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was chaos. But it's also about kingdom. It's about how God's kingdom arrives on the earth and how we participate in that. Plus, Kingdom and Chaos sounds like a new Netflix series. We thought that was kind of cool. So it's sort of like, it's kind of like this series is like an, a series of episodes, big stories that occur in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you'd like, this week is episode four. It's the fourth episode in this series called Kingdom and Chaos. And as we work through it, you know, we began with Hannah's prayer and, and her, her cry out to God. And then we talked about Samuel as a prophet that spoke the truth to power after being formed in the presence of God. And last week, we talked about the ark and how those stories show us, they represent to us God's throne and how we're supposed to relate to God. Well, this week, episode four is called Israel's Foolish Demand. And really, one of the things we're going to be reflecting on today in these texts is about how God's sovereignty interacts with our own free will. Now, just to be clear, we will not resolve that in today's sermon. It's definitely one of those things that Christians have wrestled with throughout the ages. But as we hear these stories, we're going to be, th be thinking about that question. In what way is God sovereign? And does God still kind of let us have our demands? Do we get to choose and chart our own course? Does God give us over to that? Or does God impose his will on us? How does this exactly work? How does the kingdom sort of arrive? And so as you follow along, you can follow along on the screen if you have a Bible or if you, or if you don't have a Bible. If you do have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we're going to read the, uh, a, a few verses here beginning in verse 4. And it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all other nations. Now it's worth noting just up front here that it is the failure of Samuel's house that leads to Israel's demand. Now, when we talk about this this morning, we're going to talk about the ways that we ask things of God that are not quite right. And maybe it's easy to point the finger at people out there and say, oh, look at people chasing all those things. They should not do this. They should not do that. But maybe this is a warning to us that it is the failure of the institutional church that has led people to ask for things they should not have asked for. And so maybe you look at movements like empty the pews or you see people being deconverted and you say, well, I wonder why that's about, what that's about. Maybe just like this story, there was a failure in the house of leadership, an institutional failure that led people, that provoked people to say, oh, we don't want to deal with this anymore. And so it goes on. They say, give us a king like all other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now, a couple things to note. Usually when you hear this story, and maybe you've heard it before in, in church or Sunday school or whatever, we think that Israel was wrong to ask for a king. But actually, when you read Deuteronomy, God had planned for Israel to have a king. 
And even in this book, in Hannah's song, in 1 Samuel, the early chapters, Hannah talks about God strengthening the horn of his anointed one, strengthening his king. And so it was not necessarily that Israel was wrong to ask for a king. Their request was not wrong in itself, but their reasons were wrong. Their reasons were wrong. They wanted a king so that they could be like everyone else. And not only were their reasons wrong, but because their reasons were wrong, actually the timing of their request was wrong. God, it was not in God's plan for them to have a king right now, but they wanted to have it right now. Their reasons were wrong, their timing were wrong, and the type of king that they wanted was wrong. When you look at Deuteronomy, the descriptions of the king that God wanted for them to have, it was a king that would reflect Yahweh's own rule. But notice, Israel doesn't say, God, we want a king who looks like you. Notice they don't say, we want a king that will remind us of your righteousness and justice. No, no. They say, God, give us a king so that we can be like everyone else. And this is why God says, in your request for a king, you are actually rejecting me. And you feel the emotion here where God says to Samuel, hey, they're not just rejecting you. They're rejecting and you feel the heartbreak and pain of God who is, later some of the prophets will compare Yahweh to being like the faithful spouse who's the victim of infidelity and repeated adultery. And Yahweh, you can feel the heart of Yahweh breaking here where he says, Samuel, I know you're sad, but they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting the first observation I want to make, I want to make several um, remarks today as we work through the text, but the first is that sometimes we make demands that do not actually glorify God. Sometimes we make demands that do not actually glorify God. How does Israel do this? Because their vision of what they need is shaped by the world around them, and then they come to God and say, God, would you deliver on that, please? Listen, here's what we do so often. We think that Christianity is only concerned with a little transaction about the afterlife. And so we say, okay, God, I got to pray this prayer, say this thing, sign the dotted line, and then you'll save me from hell, right, from that other place, and you'll make sure that I go to that good place. And we got this transaction, but then once that transaction is done, we're like, now I can live how I want to live, right? I can conduct my business affairs the way I want to conduct my business affairs. I can spend my money the way I want to spend my money. And by the way, God, when I need something, would you be available for me? But see, the gospel is not just about saying, okay, behave this way or make sure you pray this prayer. The gospel invites us to be transformed in our very desires. Philippians 2 says it's God who's working in us both to desire and to do the will of God. Israel never got their desires reshaped by God. Their desires were being shaped by the world out there. Ooh, king, we need a king like that. We need that kind of king. And then they come to God with those desires shaped by the world and then make their demands of God. How often do we do that? How often do we have the world's definition of success and then come to God and say, God, would you deliver on that? God, would you make me smart and successful and famous and influential and ridiculously wealthy? Well, because that's what I want, and you're God, so go ahead and do that, God. And so our vision of success has not actually been reshaped by the cross or by the kingdom. We've just imported in the American dream and then baptized it in our prayer life. 
Still got the American dream, but now we pray it. So God, make me super successful. Put me on the cover, Lord, of that magazine. This happens all the time. It happens not just with our imagination of success or power. It also happens with our imagination of intimacy. How often in church have we told young people, look, the only thing you need to know about sex is just wait till you're married. You don't actually need to change the way you think about intimacy or how that works. You just need to wait. It's just timing. It's all about time. Once you get married, then boom. And then we discover that couple after couple after couple is actually dealing with lust, but imported into a Christian marriage. Because we said, you don't actually need to change your vision of what intimacy is. You just need to wait for the timeline to be right. Get married first. But you see, the gospel wants to do a work that is deeper than that. You don't come to God with your world-shaped demands. You don't come to God with your world, with your culture-shaped desires. You come to, that those are demands that do not end up glorifying God. What we say to God is, show me what intimacy actually looks like. Show me what leadership actually looks like. Show me what bl the blessed life actually looks like. And then let me offer that to you in prayer. But see, Israel gets their vision of strong, successful nation from all the other nations around them. And they're like, oh, I see Assyria, I see Egypt, I see this, I see that. Oh, ooh, 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 let's have that God. And God's like, no, that's a rejection of me. When you bring demands to God that are shaped by the world's desires, those demands, those requests will always be a rejection of God. Because what you're saying to God is, I don't actually want what you want. I want what I want. <laughs> and I just want you to deliver. So those demands don't glorify God. Now, we go on in the story. Verse 10, Samuel, God through Samuel tries to warn the people. And so in verse 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, now I want you to look at the screen here because we've underlined some phrases. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will, say this with me, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. We could have also underlined the word him. It's all for himself and his chariots, his harvest, his ground, and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. And then it goes on and he will, say it with me, take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers and he will Take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves and in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day wow here is a strong warning from the Lord look if you want a king it's going to look like that six times in the English translation it says the word take kings take 
This is what kings do. Kings build their own empire. Kings build their own agenda. Kings amass strength for themselves. Kings take, kings take, kings take. And listen to how Israel responds. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No! You're crazy! But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. I mean, is this insanity or what? I mean, you ever met a person who you know they're going down the wrong road, but they decide to double down on their mistake, right? You ever met that friend, they're like in a relationship, like a girl, that is a toxic relationship, that is not a good dude, and she's like, I don't care what you say, in fact, we're eloping. You're like, what are you doing? Listen, doubling down on a mistake does not make it better. Being super committed to the wrong choice is not the right choice. It doesn't make it okay. You can't rectify your stubbornness by being extra committed. It doesn't work. And here's Israel saying, I know that kings take, but we want a king. We're ready. God's like, we make demands that do not lead to our good. That's the second thing I want you to observe from this story. Not only that we make demands that do not glorify God, but sometimes we make demands that actually don't even lead to our good. It's not actually good for us. See, one of the myths about Christianity is that God is a killjoy, that God just hates fun, and the devil is all the good music. And, you know, all of this stuff. You're like, oh, God, oh, now I've sown my wild oats. Now I'll be a Christian. As if there's no more fun to be had. But what if God's commands actually lead to life and our demands actually lead to death? What if that's the way it's supposed to be? And on and on, over and over again throughout the Old Testament, you see the wisdom literature trying to say, it's not just Torah full of, I don't just have instruction for you, I want wisdom for you. And the wisdom books in the Old Testament say to us, God's instructions lead to life. They lead to flourishing. It's how your life was meant to work. I know, and every person in the room who hates reading instructions for a new thing, you know, you're like, oh no, right? But this is the way God wants us to understand his commands. His commands actually lead to life. We could give dozens of examples here from our own age and from our own culture, but I think one of the maybe more poignant ones is to think about how the world talks to us about pornography. It says, oh, this, is a, this doesn't harm anyone else. This is just about your expression and your freedom. There's is not, nothing wrong here. And then we discover secular study after secular study after study that shows how it rewires our brains and remaps the way we think about intimacy. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a situation today where young professionals no longer know how to form real relationships of intimacy that eventually lead to commitments. It's a long-form piece done in Vanity Fair, another long-form piece in the Atlantic that chronicles struggles of dating life today because pornography has taught us that sex has to come first. 
then we'll decide if this is a relationship worth having. You wonder as you look at this landscape, we say, well, have our demands actually led to our good? Or have our demands actually led to our demise? What we've called liberation has actually been bondage. What we've called freedom has actually been slavery. And so the myth that Christianity is a killjoy, the scriptures invite us to revisit that perception. So what if it's actually our demands that don't lead to our own good? Then as the story goes on, 1 Samuel 9 tells us a bit more about Saul. And one of the things it tells us about Saul is that he was handsome and that he was tall. In fact, it, it says it very clearly there in verse 9. Saul was tall. He was more handsome than anyone else and he was taller than anyone else. And it's just interesting because everything else chapter 9 tells us about Saul is not very good. In fact, you see in, in, in chapter 9 that Saul... Um, it's not very responsible. He's in charge of his father's donkeys and he loses them. And I don't know if it's easy or hard to lose donkeys. I can't say. But we can at least say that Saul's probably not super responsible. Loses the donkeys. Then not only does he lose the donkeys, but he decides to give up looking. So, like, not super persistent either. You know, like, you lost your dad's donkeys and he's like, eh, let's just go home. And then his servant is like, listen, there's a man of God. There's a prophet here. Maybe he can help us. And Saul's like, I don't know. Like, we typically need to bring, like, an offering. I got nothing to bring. And the servant's like, look, we got stuff. We can make this work. He's not even very resourceful. He's not responsible. He's not persistent. He's not resourceful. But he is tall. <laughs> but, but he is tall. I mean, he's got that going for him, you know. Years ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Blink. And he talked about the error that we tend to make, specifically with regard to height. We tend to associate height with leadership and being impressive. Now, if you're tall and impressive, I'm sure you're wonderful, you know. Um, but what Gladwell's talking about is the tendency to confuse those things. And so he says, he actually did a survey with Fortune 500 companies, and he discovered that in America, only 14.5% of men are six feet or taller. Only 14.5% of men in America are six feet or taller. I know some of you are like, oh, that's great. Okay. You're not, you're not in the majority. But, but, but of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, 58% of them are six feet or taller. That is not representative per se. There's this thing in us that says tall. Is good. Now, I, I know, maybe this is my own beef here at 5'9". You know, maybe, I, this full disclosure. But here you see the people of Israel choosing Saul because he's, he looks impressive. He looks the part. But actually, he's not impressive at all. And then you get to chapter 10, verse 17. This is the whole theater of anointing. This whole drama of unfolding in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Gee, what do you think God's point is in reminding them of their history? Remember how God said it to Samuel? He said, look, from the days of Egypt, they've been rejecting me. And now God's saying, look... This is nothing new. 
I'm the one who saved you. All those other kingdoms you wanted to be like, I saved you from them. But no, now you want to be like them. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distress and have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Now, picture this. It's like all the tribes lined up and then, you know, if there were a spotlight, just imagine with me, it's like, okay, boom, this tribe. They brought the tribe of Benjamin near its clans. And then from the tribe of Benjamin, the spotlight circulating, ominous music is playing, you know. Dun, dun, dun. Who's it going to be? Dun, dun, dun. It's the clan of the Metrites was taken by Lot. And then they're like, okay, who from this family? Dun, 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 dun. Boom. Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Saul. And then they can't find him. I mean, this is like comedy. You're like, what a buildup. You're like, which tribe? Ooh, the tribe of Benjamin. Ooh, which clan? The Metrites. Ooh, who from that clan? Saul. They're like, Saul. Paging Saul, son of Kish. Please come to the... Where are you, Saul? The Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot, but they sought him and he could not be found. And so they asked the Lord, is there a man still to come? Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold. I mean, imagine this. The Lord is speaking now. And God says, behold, he's hiding. <laughs> Thus says the Lord. The one I've chosen is a coward. He's hiding, hidden himself among the baggage. And then they ran and took him from there. I mean, they had to take him. This is all a bad sign. And when he stood among the people, he was tall. He may be a coward, but by golly, he's tall. Taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. The irony is dripping from this text. And you say, Well, but Glenn, it says that God chose him. Yes, but God chose who they would have chosen. You said you wanted a king like all the other nations. I'll give you that guy. Here's the guy who looks the part, but actually is a coward. Sometimes we make demands that aren't actually even good. It's not actually a good choice. Not only does it not lead to our good, but Saul himself is not good. This is like not the guy. It's so clear he's not the guy. Now, this whole scene of hiding in the baggage, it comes after a very dramatic episode in, in chapter 9 where Samuel says to him, look, I want you to know that the Spirit of the Lord is going to come on you and you're going to start prophesying. You're going to turn into another man. In other words, there's an anointing that has the power to change you. And Saul tastes that. Saul experiences that. He, he for a brief moment, starts acting like someone else. But imagine, even that was not enough for Saul to believe that God could use him. Even that. It's like you've experienced how the anointing of God can change you and you're still hiding. That's a different level of cowardice or insecurity. Like you've experienced God transforming you and using you and you're still like, yeah, I don't want that. No, I don't want that. And we're meant to see that here is a person that doesn't even want the anointing of God. 
Here's a person that doesn't even want the pouring out of the Spirit of God. Here's a person that is not actually good. Not even remotely a good choice. Why does God choose him then? Why does the story unfold like it's God who's choosing Saul? I think it's because sometimes God gives us over to our demands. Sometimes God gives us over to it. And this is where that mystery of, well, I thought he's sovereign. Won't he just always get his way? And somehow there's this mystery here where God says, if this is what you're insisting on, then have it. Have it. It's interesting that the book of Romans opens up where Paul's setting the scene for the sin and the fall of man. Three times Paul says in Romans 1, God gave them over. And he says he gave them over to their sinful desires He gave them over to their shameful lusts. He gave them over to their depraved minds. In fact, later on, in in one of his other letters, Paul will tell a church, the best thing to do to discipline someone is to give them over. Get them out of the church and give them over. And he kind of says it even stronger. He says, give them over to the devil so that they can be saved. Sometimes God actually gives us over to our demands. You insist on this? Then have it. One of the great other myths about Christianity is that God's judgment is random and arbitrary. That God stands up in heaven, this capricious egomaniac, and he's like, Who shall I smite today? (laughs) But when you read the scriptures, that's not at all what the judgment of God looks like. In fact, very often, the judgment of God is not, of course, it's just, but not only is it just, it is actually giving us the very thing we asked for. And so C.S. Lewis says it this way when he's talking about God's ultimate judgment. He says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Do you want to live your life without me? You can have it for eternity. All that are in hell, choose it, Lewis says. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. The scriptures show us that hell itself was prepared for the devil and his demons. But if you insist on that, God says, you can have it. But in the end, it's we who are sending ourselves there. Lewis goes on and puts it this way. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. And to those who knock, it is opened. Here Lewis, of course, is quoting Jesus. And the idea is that even in an ultimate sense, God's judgment looks like God giving us over to our demands. You spent your whole life saying, my will be done. And God says, okay, thy will be done. Have it. The great tragedy of the human drama is when we actually get what we want. The great tragedy of the human story is when we actually get what we, maybe I should say, what we think we want. But see, the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. First Samuel doesn't end there. This is not the series finale. This is just episode four. And you see, even when God 
gives us over to our demands, he does not give up on us. Even when God gives us over to our demands, he does not give up on us. You see, it's kind of like that thing where you're, you're following directions to get to a certain place and Google Maps says, oh, you've taken a wrong turn. And all of a sudden it spins and it says, recalculating. And you're like, oh, okay, I got distracted again. And you're not paying attention. All of a sudden you got way off course. And Google says, recalculating. Eventually I want Google to say, do you still want to go there or not? Right? <laughs> And, and if Google will, will, will recalculate for you, how much more? How much more does the God who is our shepherd and guide look at us and say, you're insisting on this, I'm giving you over to that, but I'm going to recalculate, I've got a way out of this, I'm going to make a way where there seems to be no way, it seems like you've taken a turn that has led to a dead end, but it's not going to be a dead end, if you let me, I will reroute you, I'll get this story back on track. Even when God gives us over to our demands, He does not give up on us. He does not give up on us. See, the kingdom, Israel demands this king. God's like, I always, I, it was in my plan for you to have a king, not like this and not that kind of king, but okay, I'll work with this. And through this story, somehow, eventually, we get David. And with David, we get peace, finally, and victory, we get a temple with Solomon, but even those kings aren't quite it, are they? Even those kings aren't really the answer. Why? Because when David commits his adultery with Bathsheba, do you know what the writers of the, of the story in 1 Samuel, do, do, do you know what they say about David or 2 Samuel? They don't say that he had an affair. They don't use the Hebrew word they could have used. Instead, they use the Hebrew verb, he took. He took. Bathsheba. Why? Because he wanted them to remember what Samuel said. Kings take. Even the good ones take. Kings take. It's what they do. And David took Bathsheba. And Solomon took from the people by demanding all of these building projects. And so you get to the end of the Old Testament and you kind of have the same question that the people of Israel asked when Saul was hiding in the baggage. That same question echoes largely and loudly at the end of the Old Testament. Is there a man to come? Because these men were not good enough. Is there a man to come? And from that cliffhanger, the Gospels begin. And there is a man from Galilee Amen. who came and he went about doing good and healing the sick and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom the kingdom and one day right as he was arrested right before being crucified on a Roman cross Pilate says to him behold the man is there a man still to come? Yes, and his name is Jesus. See, even Romans doesn't end with Romans 1. Romans 1's just the beginning. It's just the setup where God says, and he gave them over. But then what else does Romans say? It says that if by one man's sin, death entered the world, then by one man's obedience, righteousness would come into the world. And if the wages of sin are death, then the gift of God is eternal life. And by the time we get to Romans 8, Paul's practically shouting, and he's saying, if you are in this man, Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation. 
And finally you exclaim at the end of Romans 8, now I see it, that in all things God is working for our good and for his glory. Even when we make demands that do not glorify him, even when we make demands that do not lead to our good, God still works. God still works. And so the last thing we see in this story is that God redeems even our worst mistakes. God redeems even. How does sovereignty and free will work? I'm not exactly sure, but I do know that God's power to redeem is stronger than our power to mess it up. And somehow the greatness of God overshadows the darkness of human sin. This is why Paul says it in Romans over and over again. He says, look, 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 where sin abounds, grace abounds more. It's more. It's more. It's more. It's more. It's more. God's power to redeem is more. It's greater. It's stronger. The end of the story is not, well, I guess we got what we deserve. The end of the story is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in all things, God works for our good and for his glory. God can redeem even our worst mistakes. Even our worst. And so you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, gosh, I've made some demands that actually do not glorify God. And and I've made some demands that have not actually led to my good. And actually, my my whole calibration of desires is off. I desire things and demand things that aren't even actually good. That's how broken I am. And I have experienced the consequences of my own choices. I have experienced God giving me over to my demands. But, But can I say to you this morning that the last point is the most important one. That God can redeem even your worst mistakes. Jesus is the man who was still to come. Jesus is the king who does not take but gives his own life. The gospel reading this morning said, has Jesus saying, no one takes my life, I lay it down. Jesus is the God who redeems even our worst mistakes. Would you bow your heads this morning? Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.